This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Just in time for Holocaust Education Week, a new work from a German author challenges the conventional view of Adolf Eichmann that he was a bureaucrat following orders when he carried out the final solution. I'll talk to Bettina Stangnet about some shocking truths about Nazis in the post-war world. Plus, she created a worldwide sensation with an essay entitled Why Women Still Can't Have It All, just days after Justin Trudeau named a cabinet featuring gender parity, the formidable Anne-Marie Slaughter was in town with her blueprint for a new gender equality. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Prime Minister Trudeau is getting a lot of attention and praise for his gender-equal, multicultural and multi-generational cabinet. But there is one thing missing. There's no specific ministry to deal with seniors as there was in the previous government. This at a time in the country's history when, for the first time, Zoomers outnumber children. There is, however, a minister in charge of families, children and social development. Meanwhile, the cost of caring for seniors in Canada is expected to more than double over the next 10 years. A new report from the Conference Board of Canada suggests those costs will hit $62.3 billion in 2026, up from $28.3 billion in 2011. Currently, only about 1.4 million seniors need support. But as the Zoomer generation continues to age, that number is expected to rise to $2.4 million. This Tuesday was the National Day of Action and Solidarity for the Right to Die with Dignity. In communities across Canada, people gathered to show support for the Right to Die movement. Canada's recent Supreme Court decision means the ban on doctor-assisted death ends on February 6th. However, earlier legislation passed in Quebec will allow physician-assisted death starting on December the 10th. Opponents of the legislation say the province will be acting in a legal gray zone. However, Wanda Morris, the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, is confident the new federal government will support Quebec's legislation. And finally... Making the stand-up debut at 89 years old, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chuck Esterloo. A video of an 89-year-old man making his stand-up comedy debut has gone viral. Chuck Esterly took to the stage at a comedy club in Cincinnati this week. Everybody here at the comedy club has been very nice to me. You know, old new guy, I guess you'd say. And uh, uh, the manager, he wished me well, and he said, Don't die up there. <laughs> I think he was talking about my jokes. <laughs> I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
talk about timing. The author who sparked an international debate by arguing that women still can't have it all was in town, just as the Trudeau government set out to show that yes, they can, by naming a cabinet with an equal number of men and women. Anne-Marie Slaughter left her dream job at the State Department to return to academe because of the demands of family life. She landed in Toronto this week to talk about unfinished business, a blueprint on how to finish the struggle for equality between men and women, work and family. I salute uh, Canada for it. I have to say it, it is something to look at a cabinet that is genuinely reflective of the nation it is supposed to govern. And uh, I do think it will make a very big difference, not only for because of the women in the cabinet, but because we know from research that the presence of that many women, anything uh, north of 35 to 40 percent, will change uh, the uh, behavior of the men. Nine of the 15 women have children obviously at various ages. Now, you caused a sensation first with your article arguing that women can't have it all. So are these female cabinet ministers deluding themselves to think that they can do that kind of an intense job and and without having their home life and their parenting suffer? So I guess my question would be, how many men in the cabinet have children? Surely that's just as important. And um, why aren't we asking that question about them? Well, (laughs) you tell me. No, I mean it. That's the point of unfinished business, that we talk about working mothers, but we don't talk about working fathers. So, you know, that the way we look at that, I don't mean to single you out, is the problem. (laughs) We'd say, well, you know, all of the people in the cabinet, probably most of them have children. Then the question, of course, is which of them have children who are still at home, because that's the really essential question. But you might also ask who, who have parents that they have to care for. And then we should be asking, so, you know, men and women create children, and it's up to men and women to raise them. And those are working fathers as well as working mothers, and they all need uh, working conditions, but also a support system at home uh, that will allow them to do very big jobs uh, and and have whatever family members who need care they have it at, at home. And you know, many of those women may well need a lead parent husband or a lead parent wife, uh, depending. Uh, just as many of those men will need a lead parent wife. One of the very interesting points that you made. Uh, in your book, with your own case, is that even if you have that person who's a lead caregiver, it doesn't mean that uh, there aren't going to be problems, and it doesn't mean that that you will not be torn about not being there if your kids need you. I think that's that's right, and you know, if that was true for me, just then we we're talking about affluent women, but just think of the millions of women who don't have the money to buy help and don't have the kind of jobs that that, that are flexible. But yes, my point is. You can hit a tipping point pretty much no matter what, because my child went through a particularly rocky adolescence. That's not unusual. I know plenty of parents yep. where their kids hit teenagehood and sort of hit the skids. You, you can have a divorce. You can have a child with special needs. You can depend on parents or extended family for care and have you know something happen to one of your parents or, or you have to move. There are just so many ways in which trying to fit together the unpredictability of care, because that's sort of the definition of care, is it's, un- it's rewarding but unpredictable, with the necessary predictability of work can be very hard. And that's where my arguments are. We have to 
create space for that, not just in workplaces sort of day-to-day, but we have to recognize that over the arc of a career, going back to your point about people in the cabinet, why shouldn't one of those women or one of those men have had a period where they were working flexibly, working part-time, maybe even out of the workforce, and then come back in when they're ready, and why aren't we recognizing their talent just as much as if they had worked, you know, straight through? We're in an up-or-out uh, system, which actually, as lives lengthen, is kind of crazy because it means you have all these people who, you know, did nothing but work for, you know, say from about 25 to 55 or 65, and then that's it. And then, you know, many of those oh, people, people are working longer, Anne Marie. No, I, I assure you, people are working <laughs> a lot longer. But the kind of people who peak still, the assumption yeah. is you're going to peak, you know, in, between 45 and 55. And my point is, if Hillary Clinton's elected, she'll be 70. You know, Janet Yellen, our, our, our chairman of our Federal Reserve, is 67. Why shouldn't we be thinking about, and Justin Trudeau is young, and that's great, but why shouldn't we also be assuming that people can not only work longer, but peak later? You say that people in places like Canada have a lot better chance of advancing themselves than they do in the United States. Yes. <laughs> And you should grow a little bit and look at your cabinet. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I say that because Canada has much more of what I call the infrastructure of care and, you know, access to quality uh, child care and elder care. Uh, And I do think Canada has, and, you know, as with your health system, it, it may not be perfect, but you recognize that the work of care is important. I'm glad that you keep mentioning elder care in the same breath, because that's huge for us here. Uh, how much do you think that the crisis over that very huge generation that's getting older is going to drive these changes? Is it going to be more the older generation or the younger one? So I, I do think we are reinventing traditional old age. Uh, and I do think that those of us, I'm, in, I'm 57, who are now thinking about, okay, what, what's this phase of life? are going to drive a lot of changes. One of the ones we're driving in the United States is a return to more multi-generational living, which I think is really interesting. Happening here, too. Well, and that's wonderful. I think that will be very important in lots of ways for figuring out ways of combining work and still a role in family caregiving, but also then, of course, the family being there for you, but the family being there for you in a way that where you're also supported by, you know, home health workers or others. Anne-Marie Slaughter, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been such a great conversation. Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, and Family is published by Penguin Random House. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. In just a moment, a radical new view of the architect of the Nazi final solution. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. We're all familiar with the notion of the banality of evil. It gained currency after Hannah Arendt's seminal book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, about Adolf Eichmann's 1961 war crimes trial. It accepted the image of him as a faceless bureaucrat who was just following orders when he carried out the Nazis' final solution. Now, a new book argues he was anything but. German philosopher Bettina Stangnet 
mined a wealth of new material which shows that throughout his post-1945 exile, Eichmann remained a passionate, ideologically convinced Nazi, proud of his genocidal work. I talked with Stangnet about her book, Eichmann Before Jerusalem, when she was in town for the Peter Kundel Prize for historical writing. He was the organizer of the Holocaust, um, but we believed him when he said, okay, after the war, uh, I started a normal life as a normal man with no political interests, with no connections to other people with political interests. I stopped to be a Nazi. And this new sources can show us how big this lie was. Well, of course, there is the iconic book written by Hannah Arendt, Eichmann in Jerusalem called a report on the banality of evil. Now, of course, it was very controversial, but that book influenced the view many, many people had of Eichmann, and it was her theory was that he's not some kind of fiend. He was just following orders. That expression comes from there, just a bureaucrat, following orders, not thinking. Did you accept that before you embarked on this? As I started with my research about Eichmann, I was convinced that she's right. You also show that, uh, on the contrary, not only was he not some kind of faceless bureaucrat, we know, of course, he was the architect of the final solution, but that he sought the limelight and he, he was proud of being a Nazi and, and a very prominent one at that. Yes, this is a real surprise. And so when did he start having these meetings with fellow Nazis in Argentina? Uh, 1957. And uh, the, the plan was to write a book. We had no idea before that Eichmann really planned a book and that there's a manuscript of this book. And uh, he was hoping that uh, the West would hate communism enough so that they would allow another Nazi regime to grow up in Germany, right? One hope was that the Allies uh, had a big problem with, with Russia, with uh, the East, with the communism, so another Nazi regime could be possible someday. And uh, the second hope was that uh, the people from the Near East, Islamic people, will hunt for the Jews now. The other thing that's very interesting is that you show through documents that uh, both the German authorities and Israeli authorities knew about his whereabouts long before he was uh, kidnapped and arrested. So tell me, please lay that out. Uh, the U.S. authorities too. Um, Eichmann ran to Argentina 1950. And he started to find out how to live there together with a lot of friends and relations. And then he called his wife and with three sons to follow him. And uh, you cannot leave uh, Europe together with three children with the name of Eichmann without someone who will see you. Uh, so the German Secret Service knew 1952 that Eichmann is alive. Uh, and they knew the dress of him. And they kept it as a secret. So the German secret, uh, secret Service uh, did not uh, tell it 
uh, neither to CIA nor to Mossad nor to Israel. And so why and did they, sorry, why did they keep it a secret? Um, it's a very interesting question. Uh, Germany after 1945, after the Second World War, was not so eager to search for the perpetrators because a lot of perpetrators were around. And uh, they wanted silence. Israel learned about Eichmann's uh, were about 1958 and they need two years to make the plan to uh, kidnap him. You say in the book that because of this, there was this missed opportunity to have this trial in Germany. Uh, why would that have been better than the way it turned out? The trial in Israel in 1962 was a very fair one, a perfect made one, and uh, the best one a victim and a perpetrator could get. But it's always better to clean your own house. But... Germany has has done really uh, an admirable job of taking responsibility for the Holocaust, despite not having the trial. But not before 1964. Uh, the first real big trial against Nazi perpetrators made from German courts was 1964, the Auschwitz trial in Frankfurt. And why is it important to know all, of, all this now? I'm a philosopher, so I'm interested in the power of lying and uh, the danger of evil. And I think we had a wrong image about national socialists. If we try to read his manuscripts, we can find a totally different national socialism. And this attitude of mind is much more dangerous and it is still alive not only in Germany. Okay, Bettina Steinnet, thank you so much. Thank you. Eichmann Before Jerusalem is published by Vintage Books. Bettina Steinnet was a finalist for the Kundal Prize, which was handed out in Toronto earlier this week. I'm Libby Snymer and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. We'll come back to celebrate Joni Mitchell's birthday right after this. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, Jennifer Hudson stars in The Color Purple, based on Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, which inspired the 1985 film with Oprah Winfrey and Whoopi Goldberg. The Color Purple is in previews at Jacobs Theatre on West 45th Street. In Los Angeles, an extensive exhibition celebrates Canadian-born architect Frank Gehry and his unique methods of design and technology. It's at the L.A. County Museum of Art. To London, England, where a stage production tackles the story of an 80-year-old man living with Alzheimer's disease. During the show, the audience becomes as confused as the main character. It's called The Father, and it's at Wyndham's Theatre. And the National Galleries of Scotland has unveiled its first-ever exhibition devoted entirely to women artists. It's called 90 Scottish Women and features more than 90 paintings and sculptures. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. 
This weekend, Joni Mitchell is celebrating her 72nd birthday. The singer-songwriter is a Zoomer icon and a Canadian treasure. Rolling Stone magazine has called her one of the greatest songwriters ever. It's been a tough year for Joni. In March, she was found unconscious in her Los Angeles home, and it was discovered that she'd suffered a brain aneurysm. However, she's apparently making a nice recovery. According to a recent Facebook post by her friend, singer-songwriter Judy Collins, Joni is walking, talking, painting some, and doing rehab every day. Right now, we'll hear one of Joni's biggest hits. Here is Big Yellow Taxi. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique and a swinging hot spot That was Joni Mitchell with Big Yellow Taxi. Joni is celebrating her 72nd birthday this weekend. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week for some important financial tips for anyone planning to go south this winter. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Vandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.